one step in this long progress. It's been a team effort by us all the way. We're but part of the whole team that's worked so hard. The shuttle era will come to an end. But they won't stop inspiring, and they won't stop being a part of the fabric of America. We choose to go to the moon. Alright everybody, and welcome back to Talking Space. This is the beginning of the fourth season of Talking Space, making this episode 401 for the week of Sunday, January 8th, 2012. We apologize for the slight delay, but we are coming back with regular shows and news shows in the very near future. But for today, we have a very special flashback treat. Joining me for this is Gene McCulka. Welcome, Gene. Uh, hanging in there, it's trying, still suffering from the ravages of the virus that's gone through the Northeast like Sherman's March to the Sea, but we're hanging in there. And also joining me is Mark Ratterman. Good to be here. Again, we apologize for that delay, but we're looking to come back and get some more shows to you. And to start things off today, we're going to flash back to November of 2011. When Mars Science Laboratory, also known as Curiosity, launched from the Kennedy Space Center on its nine-month journey to the red planet Mars. And while it's on its way to Mars, we figured we'd take a look back at some of the great sound files and things that we have from when both Gene and Mark went to the launch. So, Gene, how about you get things kicked off on this awesome trip down memory lane? Yeah, it was an exciting Thanksgiving week um, over at the Kennedy Space Center. Here we were uh, not soon after, you know, just just after we said goodbye to the shuttle program, here we were again uh, embarking on another uh, voyage discovery, this time going to the red planet Mars with along with a with a uh, robotic rover about the size of a Mini Cooper. If, if you've got uh, one in your driveway or if you know of a neighbor that's got one, go outside and take a look at that thing because that's about what we sent over to Mars. Um, that's how large the, uh, the uh, robotic vehicle Curiosity is. Um, it's, it's quite a machine, and we're hoping to go ahead and describe for you here tonight um, the, challenge, the, the scientific challenges that uh, MSL is going to go ahead and, and try, to, uh, try to go ahead and undertake and hopefully learn more about uh, the area around uh, Gale Crater where, where it is heading right now. Um, so, sorry, we've got uh, a nice little introduction um, we recorded uh, while at the, uh, at the press site from uh, Michael Mayer, who is the... Uh, uh, the principal investigator, well, not exactly the principal investigator. He's actually the project manager for uh, for the mission. And uh, who's going to go ahead and sort of give you an introduction as far as what's going on and uh, what uh, MSL is really all, all about. So why don't we go ahead and listen to uh, what uh, Michael Mayer has to say. Uh, in 1995, uh, NASA published a document on the exobiology strategy for exploring Mars. 
And what this called for was to how to go about exploring a planet to understand if there's the potential for life. And it requires a program, not a mission, but a series of missions that would look further into whether or not life was possible in that particular planet by looking at more and more detail of whether or not there's the potential for liquid water, whether or not there's energy, whether or not you have the right compounds for life. Mars has had a program, and in part it is so that we can get closer and closer to understanding the biological potential of the red planet. MSL plays a central role in this series of missions of looking at Mars to determine whether or not it has the potential for life. So it is capable of going to a region and exploring that region and telling us whether or not it has been or may even still be today a habitable place, something that could support microbial life. So you can see that, uh, that this has been a long time in the planning and, and, uh, and really, really an ambitious flight. Um, the principal science investigator, John uh, Grossinger, also had a very interesting explanation as far as what MSL is going to do, but he also had some different nuances. Since again, he's he's the uh, uh, the primary uh, science uh, investigator on on this mission. So um, Sawyer, again, why don't we go ahead and and listen to what uh, uh, Dr. Grossinger has got to say here? As Michael uh, mentioned, the goal of MSL is to undertake a search for habitable environments on the surface of Mars and at Gale in particular. And the, the exciting thing about the MSL mission is that people say, well, what is it that it represents a habitable environment and how is it that this mission brings us to Gale Crater? And Gale Crater, I think, is really the triumph of the, the success of the Mars program that it results in a deliberate search for something very specific. We are not a life detection mission. I know that many of you in the press would like to, to know when we're going to get on with doing that. But as you heard in the last press conference, the first and, and important step towards that is to try to understand where the good stuff may be. And in this case, a habitable environment needs to be described. It's an environment that uh, contains a, a source of water uh, that is essential for all life as we understand it on Earth. Uh, we need a source of energy, which is important for the organisms to do metabolism. And we also need a source for, of carbon, which is essential to build molecular structures that the organism is composed of. So when we do that, we look down at the surface of Mars from all the previous missions that have gone. And because of the, the, the engineering on MSL for the first time, the science community has been able to choose the very best sites uh, to go to. And from that emerges Gale, which gives us not one, not, not two, but several important different types of potentially habitable environments. So this is the deliberate search for something that we're undertaking. The expectation is, is that when we get down on the surface at Gale, we're going to find rocks. And I have an important message that I'd like to get across which is that if you take a rock which is billions of years old on Earth, and this is from a, a very old uh, place on Earth, this is the kind of rock where geologists, geochemists, and geobiologists all look at it and come to the conclusion that the layers that you see in here represent the accretion of materials in the former presence of microbial mats. And so based on textural grounds, this looks like the kind of rock you would like to take back to the lab and look at it more chemically. And when you do that, it's very disappointing. There's no organic carbon preserved in here at all. The very thing that we went to Earth to look for, a planet that's teeming with life, has no organics in it. 
So I want to emphasize that the promise of Mars Science Laboratory is that in our nominal mission, assuming that all things behave nominally, we can deliver to you a history of formerly uh, potentially habitable environments on Mars. But the expectation that we're going to find organic carbon, that's the hope of Mars Science Laboratory. It's a long shot, but we're going to try. So you can see um, they've really, really been, been uh, they've been really trying to, to see if, you know, Gale Crater is going to go ahead and give us some of the, the science that uh, they're, they're really, really looking for. Uh, Mark, we we just we were there too. When when you were there, we we talked to one of the other PIs, uh, a gentleman by the name of uh, Dr. David Blake, um, with one of his experiments. No, correct. Um, due to my short amount of time that I was at KSC for that launch, he was actually the only person that I got to hear speak talking about the mission, and it was quite interesting. Since then, I've looked at more and more of the uh, science experiments that are part of MSL in each one of them you could you know you would love to spend two three four hours with each of the PIs to to learn more about it they're that they're that intriguing Mark if I recall exactly um, we you know you and I uh, had a very good um, demo uh, on the Chem Min experiment in fact I think he had um, essentially a mock-up of what the experiment was there and and what uh, what it was planning to do, no? Right. He had it in a, uh, you know, one of those weatherproof, bulletproof, nearly type uh, carrying cases that you'd use for, for delicate equipment and apparently traveled with that and, and used that to demo how Kemen works. But uh, what I read about the actual instrument on MSL is this device is only about 10 inches on the on a side, you know, ten by ten by ten, and it only weighs twenty two pounds. And to to see the the science that they're going to do with an X ray diffraction, um, to me is just phenomenal that they've got something so elaborate in such a small size. And of course, that's part of the price that that uh, MSL adds up to being you know couple billion dollars worth of, of systems is that they're doing things that have never been done before with instruments that have never flown in, in quite this fashion in space. Exactly. Um, hey, sorry, why don't we go ahead and, and let uh, Dr. Blake himself, uh, David Blake, first off, I should say, is from the um, uh, Ames Research Center. And he is again the principal investigator on the chem the uh, the chemi- chemical chemistry and mineral experiment or um, chem min experiment on MSL. So why don't we let Dr. Dr. Blake talk about it himself? And what Kemen does is it's going to be for the first time ever. It's going to give us a quantitative analysis the mineralogy of of the Mars surface, quantitative mineralogy of the surface. Now, why is that important? Well. Uh, First of all, minerals, uh, when we see a suite of minerals, we can, we can look at what minerals are there, and we know from their stabilities uh, exactly what the environment of formation was for that rock. And, and, and that tells us a bit about the habitability of something that, it, that is very old, uh, three or four billion years old. So, uh, so okay, so we have, we have the environment of, of, of formation, we know what it is, and then we can move on to other analyses. So here's... Here's the Kemen instrument. It's uh, about 10 inches on a side, weighs about uh, 22 pounds, 
And what you don't see, a salient feature of this that you don't see is how small it is, because <laughs> you don't know what an actual diffractometer looks like. But uh, a commercial diffractometer is about uh, double-wide refrigerator-sized, and it, it requires uh, half a room full of equipment to make it operate. And so I think the real, the real reason that this is the first time this has ever been sent to off the, off the planet is because we had to make it small enough to work. So, so there it is. Well, you see a little bit like an aspirin tablet-sized bit of uh, powdered rock dropped into a funnel. And this drops into the Kemen instrument. And there are transparent cells where the, where the powder fills up the cell and it shakes to make the powder move. And you'll see uh, X-ray photons. You, they're, they're made visible in this depiction, but they're really not visible. X-ray photons going through the material and striking a, a charge couple device, a CCD imager, on the backside. Here you see the grains moving around in the beam. Individual grains come into diffraction condition and make these rings. They're called uh, Lowy rings or, or Dubai rings. And those Dubai rings are brought down to earth and we make those into one-dimensional uh, diffraction patterns. And those can be quantitative in, quantitatively anal uh, analyzed. And these analyses will tell you the, the in, in some ways, the habitability of the environment that we're studying. And it also gives a context to any uh, other measurements that are made. The really interesting thing, we, we actually went through, um, uh, Mark and I went through, a, a, as I said, a full-up demonstration of what this thing, thing is. And it has a very interesting uh, spin-off capacity. And we may have mentioned this, uh, Mark, on, on a previous program uh, before we broke for uh, for uh, for the holiday, but um, Kemen is also going to be used in, or or Dr. Blake is trying to see if he can get it to be used in developing countries that are dealing with a a huge problem of uh, counterfeit medications that are coming into the uh, that are coming into the country. It's hoped that this particular device uh, could be used to scan. Um, a sample of these medications that are coming in to see if they're actually legitimate. Uh, there are other countries that unfortunately are trying to sell these developing nations a bill of goods and, and trying to go ahead and, and, and sell essentially drugs that really don't do a darn thing. This um, particular device can scan and make sure that they're actually getting the genuine article. Uh, the um, example that uh, Dr. Blake was talking to us about was a, uh, I believe it was a, a malaria treatment. And in this one nation, uh, this malaria treatment that was supposed to be coming in was actually a placebo just dashed with acetaminophen, and that was really about it. Um, had this type of apparatus been there, it, it would have caught the, you know, the, the bad the bad drugs before it got into circulation and possibly even saved some lives. So again, you know, NASA technology uh, going to use for another purpose. So I thought that was kind of, kind of an interesting uh, uh, addendum to the Ken Min story and what it's going to be doing. Pretty impressive for a device that was intended to identify minerals and compositions of, of minerals in soil to have already, before it even gets to Mars, to have some real-world applications that uh, have never been done before with something that you can carry in one hand.
you know, to a uh, to a lab or to a any place. Doesn't even have to be a lab. You could be out in the middle of a field somewhere. Yeah, that that was the one of the advantages to to this thing. Because, um, sorry, what I'll do is I'll um, give you a, a picture where you can put up on the site for that I had taken of of the uh, of the device that uh, uh, Dr. Blake was was demonstrating to us. And again, it's quite mobile. Uh, so, um, again, it's just perfect for that type of application, but it's also perfect for trying to sift through Martian soil. Just before we continue on, just so you know, you can actually take a look at that picture on the website, TalkingSpaceOnline.com. You'll either be on the homepage for the next two or three weeks after this is released. If not, you can find it under the folder known as 2012 Podcasts. So, moving right along, uh, another gentleman that gave a presentation at the Science Brief was a gentleman by the name of Michael Malin, no stranger to uh, to NASA. He he's been he's got a long history of developing some rather sophisticated uh, cameras and so on. And he described um, an experiment that he is flying called the Mast Cam, M A S T or Mast Cam or Mast Cam. Um, and um, Sawyer, if you can run that for for us, please that explanation. Mast Cam actually consists of two cameras. One is a telephoto 100-millimeter lens. The other is a 34-millimeter lens, which is sort of a normal sort of medium-angle lens that most photographers are familiar with. The cameras take color pictures. They have an integrated color filter on the detector itself, just like a consumer digital camera, and we can take color pictures with this. Each of our masked cameras has a filter wheel, a circular uh, device that has eight positions in it for different color filters. One of those color filters in each of the two eyes is clear, and that allows us to take the color images that will look sort of much, very much like the pictures you take with your own digital cameras. Uh, three other slots in, or spots in the filter wheel are shared between the two cameras so that we can take green, blue, and long near-infrared, 1,034 nanometer for stereo observations. And then the remaining color filters are used for, uh, to fill in a multispectral spectrum of the rocks, things that, not rocks that we're looking at. Uh, the gray uh, square you see in the lower right corner of this view is actually a solar filter. It has a thousand to one attenuation of the sunlight, and we look at the sun with with both eyes in different colors to get the uh, nature of the particles in the atmosphere between the camera and the sun. So you can see, you know, the imaging is really, really starting to get kind of sophisticated out there, and it's going to be very, very exciting to see some of these some of the new images. I mean, this the, this camera here is far superior to uh, to any of the cameras that are carried carried on Spirit and Opportunity. So it will be very, very, uh, very, very interesting indeed to see these images. Um, one of the questions that did get brought up though was how long it's going to take to get these images off and send them, you know, going through the network that's been established. Um, around Mars. Uh, Mark, you're going to have to help me out here. I know we're using um, the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter as one uh, comm satellite here, but there's we still have some other assets in, in Martian orbit that we do intend to use for this flight, no? Yes, a, uh, another, another data link path aside from... Actually, they can also send data directly from Curiosity back to Earth, but the... Uh, 
the rate that they can send that data, data is even slower due to the limitations of the low power transmitter on Curiosity. But um, one of the other satellites still in orbit that we tend to forget about because we talk about MRO so much is the Mars Odyssey. And Mars Odyssey launched March 7th, 2001. It arrived October 24th, 2001. It completed its prime mission. What a surprise. August 25th of 2004, and it's currently conducting an extended mission of science and communications relay. So Mars Odyssey is there too, but the uh, the faster data link is through the MRO. And one of the things that I caught in reading about this is that their data link from Curiosity to these orbiting spacecraft, their communications pass time is in the neighborhood of 10 minutes. And so they've got to shoot the data up to the orbiting satellite is in a in a fairly short period of time, and then the sat in turn sends it back to uh, the NASA downlink sites that that are part of the deep space network. And there's a deep space network site that uh, can see Mars any time of the day because of the location they're at, which incidentally, for a little more trivia, is Goldstone in California one near Madrid, Spain, and one near Canberra, Australia. Another question that got asked, you, you mentioned the memory. Um, another question that was asked during the, the, the science conference was about the available memory. And, you know, does the, uh, the rover have enough memory to deal with all the science and, and the photography and all that? Or, and does, does the camera also, do, do these cameras also have enough memory? And, uh, Michael Malin was very kind enough to go ahead and address that question. Each of our cameras has an 8 gigabyte memory, which and each of those is bigger than the memory of the entire rover. So each camera has its own memory. It's like an 8 gig card in your Nikon, and we, have, we can record them, and, and we can store uh, something like 4,000 full-resolution uh, images taken raw. We take, like, Raw, you know, some people don't like taking raw. They take JPEG. We take raw, but we can take JPEG and we can store them as JPEG. So we're we've got a large amount of storage per camera. Each camera can do that. So the problem is going to be getting them home. It's you know even even with with a megabit per second transmission rates up to MRO and MRO's six megabit transmission back to the Earth. Uh, it's going to take a long time to get all those pictures out. So the uh, my my biggest concern, really, for my cameras is that Marty is going to take somewhere around a thousand pictures, and once we've landed, they're just sitting there waiting to come back. And but at the beginning of the mission, it's everybody wants to get on and start getting some data. So to make this beautiful high definition video of the descent, it's going to take me months before I get all those data pictures back. I'm going to start out by sending back as many as I can sort of systematically as a function of altitude to be able to do something that looks reasonably good. But to, to make the whole descent video is going to take a long time, probably long after we've driven out of the area that's actually covered by that. And then the science value of it starts to fade. It's simply more of a, of a public engagement product. But the other thing those pictures are used for is – we do not have hazard avoidance on the descent system. For the for the future missions, we're going to definitely have to have some form of hazard avoidance, and because you're going to want pinpoint landing, you want to not take a a six billion dollar mission and 
land on top of a big rock so or on a cliff. So the images will have a large value after we get them back. So for Marty, I am concerned about the downlink. MassCam, I think you've heard, everybody's looking forward to using those data to select where we're going to drive. So, yeah, the, the sad part about it is, is they are going to be shooting imagery as they are, you know, descending to, uh, to the planet. But it's going to be a long time before we get those images back. And um, he's, there's still some hope that those images are still going to be of some benefit um, to the science team. But, you know, because of the, the time lag and, and, and the, the network that we've established, and again, it's just the limitations of the bandwidth that we've got, uh, we're not going to get those images in time to, to kind of sort of help plan the traverse up, you know, up the slope near, near the, the, the main mound on, on Gale Crater. So, um, but we still will get these things, and Malin still is of the opinion that it's going to be great PR. But um, I, I still say that that perhaps uh, it, it still might help out in some way, shape, or form to confirm some things, rather than uh, uh, just rely on you know what what Curiosity is saying. It'll still help in the long run, I think. There's some other devices too on board um, Curiosity. One is called the uh, uh, the chemistry and camera experiment that a gentleman by the name of Roger Wines is uh, the, uh, the PI for, or the, the uh, primary investigator. Uh, uh, Roger Wines is a geochemist with the U.S. Department of Energy over at Los Alamos National Laboratory in uh, Los Alamos, New Mexico. Um, he also, the, uh, the camera, I believe, is also developed out there. And this is also the one that contains the... Uh, the infamous laser that's on board. So um, why don't we go ahead and listen to uh, Roger Wine's ex explanation of, uh, of the ChemCam here. A rover like Curiosity also needs to get compositional information from a distance. Uh, and so ChemCam uh, fulfills that role. It will help guide the rover to the most interesting samples uh, in which the, uh, the uh, analytical and contact and in situ instruments can spend more time uh, and be most efficient by, by doing this with the most interesting in uh, samples that we find at a distance. So ChemCam consists of two instruments that share the same telescope up on the mast. One is a laser-induced breakdown spectrometer. We call it LIBS, L-I-B-S. And the other is a remote microimager, which provides context close-up images of the spots that we shoot with the laser. So LIBS has many advantages. It uh, can remove the dust from a distance by multiple laser shots, and it can also analyze that dust, but it can remove it and then analyze the rock that's underneath without being hindered by the surface. And so it's like an arm that can reach out up to 25 feet away, brush something off, analyze it, actually look at the weathering surfaces and the interior of the rock at the same time. The instrument is a multinational uh, a collaboration between France and the U.S., and so half of the instrument was built in France and was contributed by the French Space Agency, and the other half was built in the U.S. So to represent the French part of it is uh, in the audience is Dr. Olivier Gano. So here is the body unit. This was built in Los Alamos in the U.S., and you see a command and control unit at the bottom, and then you see three spectrometers, which actually do, do the sensing for the, the ChemCam libs. 
This is the mast unit shown here, and this was contributed by France, and it uh, consists of the laser, the electronics for that laser, and a, and a telescope with a four-and-a-half-inch four diameter, and the camera that takes RMI images. You know, you sometimes hear the, the laser being referred to, and it's really not – its capabilities, they're, they're, they're not the strongest thing. Um, in fact, uh, I'll let uh, Roger Wines go ahead and explain how the laser works and, and what his expectations are of this particular device. So uh, why don't we hear him talk about that? So the, the laser basically takes the energy of a million light bulbs and it, and it focuses it onto a spot the size of a pinhead. And what that does is it ablates material off of that sample uh, in an extremely hot state uh, of thousands of degrees, and when it comes off, it's, it's shining brighter than a flame. And so what we do is we look at that light and we sense the composition of the samples. So you can see it's still, it still packs a, a wallop, if you want to go ahead and call it that from a, from a science standpoint. And uh, it, it's, it can still be used for some very good, uh, very good geology. Another detector on MSL is one that the acronym reminds me of one of the friends of the show that has helped us out with our intro and uh, and theme, and that's the RAD, which uh, I think of Russ Dale, who has done some work on our intro from day one with us. Thanks, Russ. But the RAD is is monitoring high-energy atomic subatomic particles, and it's uh, already on. It's in work now. It's been taking readings while MSL is in flight, and it will continue to operate on the surface. One of the things that's pretty unique about the radiation assessment detector is that it's, it's getting readings not just in space, but it's getting readings inside the structure of the spacecraft, and it gives them an idea of what the exposure would be to astronauts on a long-duration space flight and also in a long duration, uh, or not necessarily long duration, but on the surface of Mars when, when Curiosity lands. So this is going to enable them to, to get some ideas of what real life is going to be like and what some of the hazards are going to be, both from um, galactic cosmic rays and also from solar radiation, coronal mass ejections, and things like that. And you got to be realistic about this stuff. Um, there's times that the astronauts on board the ISS uh, take shelter, and they go to a, perhaps, I guess, a more heavily uh, shielded part of the station when there's a coronal mass ejection that's headed Earth, you know, towards Earth. And this is something to consider, and this is going to give them some science that they haven't previously gotten from a inside-the-spacecraft-type uh, reading point. So... Good to have Rad on board. Indeed, indeed, Mark, and that's a good lead-in for for a, a possible next uh, next program that we're going to be looking at is how the robotic systems are really, really going to go ahead and help out uh, planning for human expo exploration of Mars. So, um, again, this is just one example of how our, our robotic emissaries are trying to sort of help us out um, in future planning for uh, for a piloted eventually a piloted mission to Mars. One of the questions that uh, John Grossinger was asked uh, was about what his expectations were for uh, for the mission and what he thought he might see and so on. Um, he had a very, very interesting response to that. So, um, Sawyer, if you want to go ahead and run that for us, please, I'd appreciate it. 
But we're on the hot seat, you know, and, and, uh, and a wise uh, uh, a friend of mine once told me, don't promise more than you can deliver. So, you know, we, we, we're, we're on a mission to look for organic carbon. There's no question about it. I, like I said before, the promise is, is that we – the information from orbit looks so darn good now based on all the previous program successes. I'd be surprised if we landed on the surface and didn't find something that looked like it could have been a formerly habitable environment. We feel that way about what spirit and opportunity have discovered. So we will just be able to characterize them a whole heck of a lot better. But the, the, the fact, if you're trying to get me to say, you know, what's the chances of finding organic carbon, I would say it's like looking for a, uh, you know, for a, a needle in a haystack, and the haystack's as big as a football field. If, if, if the organics get preserved, and I, it allows me to w make one important point. As Paul said, the surface of Mars is being bombarded by organics all the time. If we found a buried meteorite in an ancient stratum, that would be a, I would think that would be a huge discovery because that carbon is there in the reduced form. And what that means is that a long time ago on Mars, there was something about the environment that allowed that reduced carbon to be preserved. That, that's an, a very important experiment. It's a reasonable one. Again, it's sort of the same thing, and I, I kind of remembered during this explanation as far as what, what he expected, I, I kind of flashed back a little bit to uh, Dr. Samuel Ting with, uh, with the Alpha Magnetic Spectrometer. And you're, again, I'm, I've, I've brought this thing up so, so many times, is one of your favorite slide, uh, slides of his that uh, he posted during his press conference um, was that you, you're looking for A and you end up finding, you know, B, C, and D. So, um, you know, again, we don't know. That's one of the reasons why we're going. We don't know what the heck we're going to find and what our expectations really are of this, are of this thing. Yeah, Dr. Ting, in telling us about AMS, he talked about discoveries in physics, and I won't go through the whole thing, but he mentioned one, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. He mentioned seven uh, discoveries in, in physics, and he, he mentioned the facility that they, the discovery was, uh, was made at, the original purpose of the uh, science that they, were, that they were out to do, what they thought they would discover, and then he mentioned what they actually discovered. And his point was, you know, you build an instrument, you, you, you work towards what you think you don't know, what you want to learn. And he said, oftentimes, since it's something you don't know yet, you end up discovering different things. And so I think that'll be a part of the science of MSL, especially with this phenomenal suite of detectors that they have on board. Again, um, you were uh, you were talking about that. Uh, Bill Harwood had asked a very interesting question about the history of Gale Crater and understanding, you know, how it how it came to be and and what it what what may have went on in that area and so on and so forth. Um, Russinger really had you know an eye opener as far as a question answering that question is concerned. We, we don't really understand it either. I mean, we see things, and, and you know that when you have a stratigraphic record, that it is, it is the tape recorder of some history. Uh, but you don't know how fast the tape is playing. 
and and so on earth we it wasn't until maybe 50 years ago when the discovery of radioactive decay was applied to dating rocks on the early earth that people could really fathom the depth of time represented by layers of rock that nobody really had any idea how old they were we have some crude sense of approximately how old the rocks are on Ant Gale bounded by estimates of associated with crater impact density distributions but uh, in terms of how much time the, the, the mound at Gale represents, those three miles of strata, I, I think it's a pretty healthy speculation. Uh, we don't really know. I, I would guess that it probably represents hundreds of thousands to millions to maybe tens of millions of years. But outside of that, it gets difficult to know. What we do know about habitable environments is that you can be a complete desert, and let's say that the reservoir of life exists on Mars and it's in the subsurface, and, and water were to emerge at the subsurface. It is likely that if life had been present on Mars, that, that maybe that, that uh, you would see an emergence of it. And even if it left, left even if it existed for a short period of time, had life originated on Mars, we would be able to, to look at just the one layer and maybe find the remnants there. So that, that's why this is a, a worthy enterprise, dependent only on the fact that, that life initially evolved on Mars and that the record is preserved. But that the habitable environment could have existed, some of these are very transient, and, and I'm sure we'll see plenty of those. So you can see, in, again, nobody really has the definitive answer as far as what the history of that area is, which is one of the reasons why we're going. Uh, it, it may hold the keys to, um, to understanding if there's, there's still you know, any geologic possibility for life or if, you know, if there's some, you know, some message in the soil that there might have been life there at one point. To, to reiterate, though, what, uh, um, what Grossinger was saying, that this is not a biological mission, and I, I really I can't stress this enough. A lot of because there's been some misinformation. I've been reading you know during our, our break um, some stuff, and I kind of shook, shook my head a little bit, like no, no, um, where uh, MSL is supposed to be gunning for 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 life on Mars. That's not the primary purpose of of, of this mission. It is not a biologic mission by any stretch of the imagination. Um, there are no biologic experiments on board MSL, so this is this is strictly a um, a, a geologic um, evidence type mission. Uh, a good friend of mine, uh, Jim Siegel from uh, Celebration News in uh, in uh, Florida, had a very interesting question with reference to uh, the warranty period. Now. I believe uh, Spirit and Opportunity had an expected shelf life of how long? Check me on that. Ninety days was it, or or six months, or something? Ninety like that. days. Okay, it was ninety days. And Opportunity just uh, decided uh, it was going to go ahead and sp they found a place to winter, so uh, uh, it uh, and a nice safe place to spend the winter. Uh, and they've got all expectations that opportunity is going to wake up next uh, next Martian spring and and um, be able to go ahead and work. So you know if you think about this, they, these these guys landed in 2003, and uh, opportunity at least one of them is still operational. That's still I mean you talk about bang for the buck. Wow. Um, now, uh, MSL is in a similar boat, except it has a, a sort of a two-year warranty attached to it. 
And again, my, my friend uh, Jim Siegel went ahead and, and, and asked a question with reference to that. What happens after the expiration date? And um, uh, John Grossinger took that question. And uh, we'll hear him, him talk about that. Well, you, you've seen what's happened with Spirit and Opportunity. I mean, Opportunity had a broken wheel and then went on to have an extended two-year mission beyond that. And, and Opportunity has arthritis in its arm and it doesn't deploy so well. I, I think it's all possible as long as you have a mobility system. And, uh, and you know, there's 17 cameras on this rover. So one way or another, we should be able to, to see our way around. As long as you can see and have energy, we should be able to do something. So, again, he, too, brought up the... Uh uh, the possibility of uh, of further uh, exploration with this particular machine, even though it had sort of outlived its two-year warranty date. Now, keep in mind, um, MSL does not run on solar power the same way Spirit and Opportunity do. Uh, they use a radioisotope thermoelectric generator, or RTG, um, and again, we, we're going into one of my favorite topics, which we're going to explore some, at some point um, here on this program this year, uh, the plutonium-238 issue. Uh, I'm not going to go ahead and go into too much depth with that, but needless to say, we don't produce that isotope here in, in the United States anymore. Um, there was a, 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 some legislation that was just in Congress uh, earlier and that uh, legislation apparently did not go through to go ahead and continue production here. Um, so while we're while we're in the coast phase, um, there's still a lot of work that's got to got to be done. There's going to be course corrections going on. Um, I believe, gang, there is going to be one actually this week. No, um, planned for uh, January 11th, and I believe it's a uh, about 175 minutes worth of um, f firing burns, about eight firing burns that, that, the, ro that uh, the, the folks that are take making sure that uh, MSL gets to its destination have got planned, no? That's correct. It's a decent length burn, and it's not an emergency burn or anything. It's perfectly scheduled. This is just to keep it right on track for its scheduled landing date in its scheduled landing location at Gale Crater. Right, so the engineering team is doing their job. So what's the science team doing right now? Um, they actually have, uh, back over at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, a twin of, of Curiosity, the same way that uh, Spirit and Opportunity had their own little triplet that was sitting over at uh, JPL, and I'm sure that's still you know, hard at work uh, supporting the Opportunity team. Um, so Curiosity's twin is also probably going to do the same thing um, with, uh, uh, with curiosity. So, uh, Dr. Grossinger went ahead and explained, uh, what the science team is going to be doing, uh, during the cruise phase. So let me go ahead and, and sorry if you can run that for us, please. Yeah. Uh, so in terms of the training that we'll do, we, we are about to embark on it well, they're already underway, but not with respect to the science team, but we'll begin some operational readiness tests that are uh, have a duration of somewhere between probably four and seven days where we will simulate operations of the spacecraft as, as a team uh, in the test bed at JPL. So Curiosity has a, has a twin 
uh, which was built to do these kinds of experiments the same way it was done for Mars Exploration Rover, who had a triplet that was uh, left behind at JPL. And, uh, and, and so the team will get a chance to practice uh, executing sequences, command sequences, integration of those sequences with the overall behavior of the rover in terms of the constraints that are provided by the other subsystems. And, uh, and, and we have a series of those so that when we hit the ground, uh, we have a, a really good understanding of what we're doing. However, in addition to that, something that's different uh, to some extent from what was done in MER is that we will probably pre-script uh, the, the, the first week, uh, seven to ten SOLs, where there will be very little flexibility in terms of what the science team will do. And as we hammer that out, uh, we, we will make that public, and then everybody can expect what what we'll be doing, what kind of data will come down. And it's simply because the complexity of the spacecraft is so much higher than it was for MER. We, we would just as soon make some decisions earlier on, and all the PIs are involved in, a, in, in interacting with the project in terms of defining what science will do first. So, yeah, you see, so, so the science team is not going to be, you know, looking up at the sky, you know, kind of sort of watching this thing go along. They're going to be very, very busy. Uh, along doing a lot of uh, doing a lot of preparation and a lot of uh, a lot of hard work getting ready for the traverses that uh, uh, curiosity is going to make and landing date there Sawyer is August depending on where you live it's uh, August 5th or August 6th no that's exactly right August 5th Pacific time August 6th early morning if we're talking UTC or GMT and if I'm not mistaken, if somebody and somebody out there is going to correct me on this one, it's either three o'clock or three thirty local time at um, at Gale Crater. Not that it makes a whole lot of difference. Yeah, last check, I think we're using Earth watches. Yeah, exactly. Um, but again, this is sort of just a primer of what the what the science coming out of uh, MSL is going to be. We're going to be revisiting. Uh, MSL again uh, in probably in the coming weeks uh, to talk a little bit about again how the robotics and and the human side are going to merge a little bit to support uh, missions to Mars and uh, in another upcoming program we're going to try to see if we can give you the flavor of launch day a little bit and what that was really really like and uh, uh, I'm going to go through a little bit of a journal that I prepared and uh, uh, we'll talk a little bit more about that when the time comes. So, On that note, I think we could bring this special episode to its conclusion. Just as a reminder, again, the next burn for Mars Science Laboratory is January 11th, and that's also our burn date for when we change our course when this episode releases. We got some great, very interesting things coming up, some changes, and we think you'll like them, and... We hope you will, and we hope you'll continue to stick with us as we continue on to our fourth season here in 2012. So I'd like to thank everybody who joined us again today for this special episode. Thank you for joining us, Gene McCulka. Apologies for the hiatus, guys, but we're back on. We're back and uh, hopefully better. And thank you as well, Mark Ratterman. Interesting how there's always plenty of stuff to talk about. Oh yeah, there's a lot of news that we missed so far, and... We won't miss much more of it in 2012 when we get back into regular shows shortly. But in the meantime, thank you once again for rejoining us, and 
This hasn't changed. As always, have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be, where you are. Thank you.